Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Each month, over 80,000 people download podcasts produced from the fevered mind of Royfield Brown. They cover a gamut of topics like maps, politics, American presidents, history, the archers, Formula One, Jamaican culture, and Englishness. Go to wherever you get your podcast and type in Royfield Brown to discover a new favorite podcast today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello, this is Royfield and this is Mid-Atlantic. This is a atypical Mid-Atlantic. This is a recording which I did last week on Clubhouse. Clubhouse is a platform where we generally do record uh, the vast majority of our Mid-Atlantics, but this isn't the normal format of Mid-Atlantic. This is me somewhat freewheeling, going from topic to topic. Um, one of the great things about Clubhouse is that there are users of the app who are all over planet earth so i really use that as a way of sparking debate so we talk about the midterms we're going to talk about uh, the uk crisis uh, with the government of liz truss we talk about italian politics swedish politics um israeli politics so if you like the sound of of this why don't you um download the clubhouse app find the mid-atlantic club on it and uh, then you can join into these kind of freewheeling conversations. I do these maybe once a week or so. I generally don't put these out as a Mid-Atlantic. Uh, we are going to be having um, a lot of Mid-Atlantic content coming soon, uh, which is more the traditional format. So don't worry, we aren't dispensing with our traditional format. But this is just somewhat of a one-off. This was recorded on Friday last week. And Steve, tell us the ramifications of the July the 6th hearing yesterday. I must admit, I've only looked at headlines. I haven't really read anything exhaustive. I'm right there with you. I listened to a little of it, but but not all of it. So I can't give a 
firsthand reaction. There's so many different lenses to look at it through. I mean, politics and, you know, Trump's political viability. Will Trump and others be indicted, go to prison? What does this mean for just the stability of the U.S. democracy? I, you know, I'm not sure which one of those to take first. I, I guess I would say, despite the importance of the committee, I'm not sure how many minds it's changing or affecting. I do think some people at the margin who, you know, aren't dug in one way or another are getting the news, if not directly from watching the hearing, from news reports of the hearing. And I've got to believe whatever political viability Trump had and and he definitely has a, a, a huge base, but that base is not enough for him to ever be reelected. I really do believe that beyond that base, as large and fanatical as it is, I do believe his, his appeal outside of that base has been really gutted. I, again, I don't think it's changed a lot of minds among his, his ardent supporters, but I think among most others, his appeal is gone. And that's a good thing. Will he be indicted? I'm less certain about that. I And I have mixed feelings about it. I think it's more likely than it's ever been. And with regard to the subpoena, I mean, I, I, I don't think anyone ever expects him to show up or agree to be questioned. And I don't believe he ever will be by the January 6th commission. I'll stop there. That's a lot. Marshall, you're our friendly Republican on this app. If only all the other Republicans were as reasonable as you, sir. Give us your take on yesterday's January the 6th hearings. Were, they, were the revelations truly as seismic as they said they were going to be the day before? And what does this do for Trump's prospects to re-enter into the body politic of American politics? Well, so I think one of the things I got out of the hearing yesterday that I watched was that several Oath Keepers had pled guilty to the charge of seditious conspiracy, which is a pretty big deal. I'm not so sure if it's going to have a super baked in effect, right? For Republicans like me, who are more middle of the road, I think the hearings actually proved something personally, but the rest of the party doesn't see it that way. So they see the January 6th hearings on mass as a bunch of political theater, which in, I'm sure you could make a case for that if you really tried. But the, the point being that they're, they're not really willing to look at it critically and they're not willing to say, hey, this has changed my mind or, you know, I thought it was okay on the 6th and then this, you know, then I found these revelations. I'm not so sure if I found them truly as shattering, but I definitely found them continue to press the case that the former president had been derelict in his duty, which is what I think they were trying to prove overall. I don't know that to be true, but the way the hearings went off and how they functioned made me think they were trying to prove that the president had been derelict in his duty on the 6th. And I think, I think they've done a fairly decent job of laying that out. I just don't know whether it's as earth-shaking as the news said it was. I think it's earth-shaking. I just don't think it's, I'm not so sure that it's that earth-shaking. Is this just a real symbol of the partisan 
divide in America, that it doesn't really matter what evidence is shown that Donald Trump was complicit in this attempted coup, that he was negligent in his duties when it came to defending the Capitol when it was being stormed and his vice president was trapped there and other government, government members. Is it just a case of it really doesn't matter anymore? There's a rump, a lump and rump of people who support Trump in the face of all evidence to the contrary. I think there's a certain portion of the Republican base that's built in to agree with the pres former president no matter what he does. You know, I can't tell you exactly how big I think that is because I'm not entirely sure. But I do know plenty of Trump voters who are unwilling to find places the former president could improve. And that's my polite way of saying, pointing out where he made mistakes and saying you should have done this instead of that. So I think the partisanship, the bad partisanship has definitely affected it and makes it hard to, so the overt partisanship, my team's great, your team's bad, definitely helps propel politics on a national scale and even on a local scale. Eric, welcome to the stage. Welcome Shashank, Chris, Brian, and my good friend, Michael. Eric, question to you. What happens now? The committee says they're gonna, they want to subpoena Trump. Trump is not going to be in front of any court anytime soon, is he? I actually think I actually think that if the Democrats could leverage this interestingly, if they were to say, you know, we're going to make this an unbelievable televised event. There's going to be this huge number of people who are going to, you know, it can be simulcast on Fox and on other things, and you're going to get an intro and an outro. They, they, there's probably some way they could sweeten the deal. And this is a guy who does ignore his lawyer's advice. So it's not 100% clear to me that he couldn't be suckered into lying under oath and going potentially to jail. I mean, his, his, his lawyers would clearly, but I think his lawyers would beg and plead with him not to. So, I mean, this is a guy who lies when he doesn't even have to. And so if he were to lie under oath, also not a lawyer on the question, does that matter? Given all the evidence of all the weird things he's done, would actually lying under oath worsen his situation? I mean, getting caught with classified documents in your desk drawer. So I actually don't know that that actually worsens his position. I mean, that's a pretty simple crime. Just on that, just on that, doesn't it go to one of the hearts of the problem with not just American media, but with contemporary media, with the punditocracy that goes in and around it, that there's enough talking heads that can just about bend the truth. And there's enough people who are willing to listen to that and just want to believe that one side good, one side bad. So it's almost regardless of actually what, what the truth is, in that possibly what Trump could do is to have this massive televised event. He, we all know he's a, a born narcissist. He loves the media. He believes that if he gets in front of the camera, he can convince anybody a, a, of anything. I suppose that is one way for him to be shown up as the charlatan utterly that he is, but surely it will never get to. So one thing I think we ought to bear in mind is we're not Australia here, right? Huge numbers of people do not vote especially in in the midterms. So if this motivates um, people who might not otherwise vote, who when they vote, they vote Democrat, or when they vote, they might vote anti-corruption. You know, so it could have a big impact on the election, not 
that solid Trump supporters are suddenly going to shift and go, oh, they were right. By the way, one thing I will disagree with my buddy Marshall about is this particular hearing, I think they went well beyond trying to give you evidence that he didn't act when he should have, the 88 minutes or whatever it was. This one, they're really trying to say, we now have solid evidence that this was a coup attempt. And so that, I do think that they were trying to go well beyond criticizing him for inaction. I only listened to it on a podcast. I didn't actually get a chance to watch it yet. So I think the the impact on people who are not the most consistent voters might be valuable. Right? I mean, if you really make it out like it's not that the Republican Party as a party is a criminal conspiracy, but that a huge percentage of the electeds at the federal level have shown themselves to be a criminal conspiracy, at least on, was it literally on the 6th or a few days before, a few days after, that they had an opportunity to push back on someone who was trying to pull a coup. And like a Mitch McConnell, like right after there was speaking um, in a, a non-coy way, but then very soon thereafter, went back to not being critical of, of the Gosh. former guy's behavior. Gotcha. All right, Steve Crone, then we'll go Michael, and then Kelly, if you want to jump in. Go for it, Steve. Yeah, just two points, one new and one sort of elaborating. I agree that Trump would love to do something with a nice broad audience, but I just see no reason why he would do that under oath. I think he can speak to his core audience anytime he wants, and if he wants a broader audience, he can do a TV event. He can, he can speak to as broad an audience as he wants, unfortunately without having to be under oath. And when he's not under oath and not even being questioned, but just speaking, he can say whatever he wants. He's doing that on the stump now. And so that's what he'll do. I, I just don't see any chance he's going to put himself under oath. And with regard to the, the political appeal, I agree his core support isn't going to move. But as Eric said, I think there was compelling evidence presented, not simply that he declined to take action, but that he was actively involved in the effort to stop the count and thereby throw things into uncertainty, throw it back to the chance that the states would do whatever. It's quite clear what the plan was. John Eastman among the architects of the plan. And, you know, he just wanted to make sure that the business at the Capitol didn't happen that day and then see what would happen after that. And, and I don't really think there's any serious doubt that he not only acquiesced to that happening, but that he and those around him actively supported it, coordinated it, threw gasoline on the fire, you know, were involved actively in various ways. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Michael, you unmuted before. You're up next, sir. I got the feeling it's sort of performative by the committee. I think it's their way of sort of saying, you know, we're doing the most we can to hear his side of the story. But the end goal for him testifying, there's no solution or no reason that that helps Trump in any way, right? Because they're contemplating forwarding criminal charges. So either he comes in and he just pleads the fifth to all their questions, which might be tough for someone like him to do, or he recites, like someone was saying, he recites what's on their stump speech, which is 
Are you going to then prosecute him for lying to Congress or lying under oath? I think like if you're trying to trap him, that seems like such a minor charge and such a minor item and more difficult to prove than the bigger charges that are he's currently potentially facing. I guess I don't see the benefit of having him testify from really anybody's perspective, you know, either the committee or Trump himself. And But I do think it was important for them to show that they're trying as hard as they can to get his side of things. Kelly, we have a president who looks like he could well have orchestrated tearing up the Constitution, basically. America nearly came to not having a peaceful transfer of power, and arguably it didn't have a peaceful transfer of power. Surely the book should be thrown at anybody who attempts to subvert the Constitution, and justice needs to seem to be done. What next for the Republican Party with somebody like that who is nominally still its titular head? Yeah, I, I, all I can say about the occurrences after what happened January 6th and, and what the ultimate outcome will be is is that I, I think that if in fact, you know, something is to come of this in terms of Trump getting in real trouble, not being eligible to run, like that ultimately I think does benefit the, the, the GNC. I will say, I think the one outcome that's not good for anybody, but certainly not the, the Democrats would be a sense of impotency. If they make a case, even if it's not a legal one that goes anywhere, if they make a case to the American public that this has happened in the way that they said it has, and they aren't able to actually do anything. I, I think that this sense of apathy towards, you know, institutions at this point grows and people wonder what the point of all of it is. And also it, it, a furtherance of, of nothing coming of the, the different ways that they've tried to, I, I hate saying attack because I think a lot of it's been warranted, but not having anything come of this is not going to be a good thing, certainly not for Democrats, but definitely not for Americans. And having something come of it is beneficial. I really don't know what to think about him testifying. I, I don't know how any outcome here is is beneficial to Democrats. I know that's not quite your question, but I certainly hope that whatever we can we can be convinced of that he's done, something can be done about it. Because otherwise, it, that's a depressing thought to think that what occurred, there's no retribution. Let's pivot away from American domestic politics now. Shashank in the UK. We are having what is technically called a shit show. Our new prime minister has been in power for, what, six weeks already. She sacked her chancellor. For those that don't understand that expression, the chancellor is the finance minister. They had this radical budget which was going to aid British growth just before the country goes into a, 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 a deep recession. The money markets throughout the world says, oh, no, you're not in Britain. The pound crashed against the dollar, and she's had to reverse her financial plans. But a sacrificial lamb has been Kwasi Kwarteng, the Chancellor of the United Kingdom. Shashank, how much longer is Liz Truss going to be in power? I have ordered a crystal ball from Amazon. It is in the post, and I shall be able to tell you the answer by 31st of March next year. You know, <laughs> here's the thing. Have you seen, Shashank, that the, the Daily Star, for people that don't know, the Daily Star is the trashiest of tabloid newspapers in the United Kingdom, actually have a camera trained 
on a lettuce and a picture of Liz Truss. And the question is, which will go first? Will the lettuce rot before the prime minister goes or vice versa? That's how shaky her tenure is. And she's only been in power for, uh, for six weeks. So if the Daily Star, which is nominally a, a Tory voting newspaper, is doing this somewhat. <laughs> it's quite funny, I have to it, say. <laughs> it's, it shows you what little confidence there is in this woman, and she's only been in power for six weeks. And if it hadn't have been for the Queen dying and the 10 days of mourning for the Queen, that's given a 10 days worth of respite. You know, it's like this is well, how bad things actually are. But, Rothil, you, you and I both know that there is different, different forces against her within the party and outside. Of course, outside party, you know, of course, they will get their job. But in the famous quote, as one of the prime ministers had mentioned, that their biggest enemies on the prime minister, the front benchers, is not in front of them, it's behind them. And she and Quasi haven't really helped themselves by bulldozing this very radical, as you said, radical budget without doing what they should have done is to bring people on board and it didn't help that Liz had a opponent in former Chancellor Rishi Sunak. So his brigade is probably against her because they kept on saying that she's going to wreck the economy. Now they have all the ammunition to prove that she's wrecking the economy. And Kwasi's biggest mistake was, I think, in my opinion, that he knew that what he was going to do, which is cut down the top tax, not reverse the expansion of the corporate tax, and do all that spending. And while OBR was ready to deliver the draft outlook, I'm pretty sure he saw it and he didn't want anybody to see it. And that's why they did not publish it side by side. And that's the worst mistake you can do in leadership. It doesn't matter if you are the better of the bad news. But if you allow other people to buy that bad news, then suddenly the bad news doesn't look that bad at all because everybody's buying it. But when you bulldoze your way through the bad news while everybody are hiding the truth or hiding the independent institutions which scrutinize the government, that is when really, as you said, shit show, shit has hit the fan and the reminiscences are all over across all the walls of Whitehall. Yes, all of that is true. And one of the reasons why Liz Truss finds herself in this position is fundamentally because of hubris. When she won the leadership election, what she did was to install the most right-wing government in, in British electoral history. And that's not me saying that. That's Matthew Paris, who is a conservative pundit of some some vintage in the United Kingdom, who actually said when she won the leadership election, number one, she's crazy, she's an ideologue, but also we can have the most right wing of conservative governments. And one of the structural problems that the Conservative Party actually have is the way that the leader is elected is a combination of the parliamentary party puts forward two candidates, then whoever then wins that contest, the, the top two are then put out to the membership. And the membership of the Conservative Party is incredibly narrow. There's only about 110,000 of them throughout the country. So they vote, they are the lumpen base of the, of the Conservative Party. Invariably, they're rural, they're more elderly than the typical modal British voter. So they vote for the most conservative candidate, if you put it in front of them. The country has moved away from austerity and the parliamentary 
party did not actually vote for Liz Truss. They voted for Rishi Sunak. And as you said, Shashank, he said very clearly that in the hustings for the leadership of the Conservative Party, that her economics were voodoo economics, which would crash the pound. So he is by far the most sober candidate, but that's not who the base voted for. So what then you had with Liz Truss is a situ situation whereby she gets into power and she puts her friends in key places. Kwasi Kwarteng, who she wrote that book, was it Unchaining Britannia back 10 years ago, which all of these ideas of slashing public spending whilst borrowing massively and then slashing rates of tax were all outlined. But Britain isn't big enough to go in for this level of radical economic surgery without tanking the pound, which is one of the world's reserve currencies. So it's the money markets have actually told the British government how it should be running its fiscal and financial policies. Shashank. Everything that you said is absolutely right. However, one point that you mentioned about Rishi, Rishi was not very competent chancellor either, but he was also installed as a favor to Boris Johnson for Boris Johnson's aspirations. And hence, when the leadership election happened, anybody who was not around, who was not a Brexiteer, and who was not somehow allied with Boris Johnson, did not stand for candidature because they knew that this brigade is going to bring them down. If you look back at the candidature that happened when previous one, when Jeremy Hunt and others were there, Philip Hammond, they didn't stand for election for you know premiership this time because they, they they knew that if they stood, there is no chance because these people will bring them down and they bring them down hard. And as you know now, Jeremy Hunt is now the chancellor. What you were right in terms of Liz should have, after winning, had taken slightly more time and tried to find more balance and placed in right people for the right job. She didn't do that. She basically rewarded every loyal person the same way that Boris Johnson rewarded everybody who was loyal to him. And when in politics, particularly in times of turmoil, you only reward there's a word for it, chapels, people who are ass lickers, basically, then you they're not doing the job. All they're doing is making sure that they, their leader is somehow satisfied with what they would do. And that's what has happened. And when that, whenever that happens, it's a shit show. Michael, last word to you, because I know you're a student of, of British politics. Sum up the last 24 hours in British politics and possibly what happens next. Well, since they're paying me so much for my opinion, I guess I'll offer it. If I'm the Tories, I call a general election right now and lose it and stick labor with a hurting economy that doesn't look like it'll change anytime soon. And and just get your ducks back in a row, start getting some polished candidates, start rehabilitating the Tory image. But when you're at this sort of deficit, and there doesn't seem to be a way out no matter what you do, right? There's no good exit from this economy for Britain. Then I would I would punt the ball, let them fumble with it, and then come in in X number of years and play the savior again. I'm a little bit concerned long term. Also, this is a complete side issue. I'm worried about the whispers of this is what you get when you elect a leader who has been to a comprehensive school when you step outside the Etonian class, I'm afraid that within Tory circles, this might reemphasize that point on a much more subtle level, obviously.
You know, just on that point, when she said just, what, three weeks ago at the Conservative Party conference that I am the first prime minister who went to a comprehensive school, for those that don't understand that, that phrase, it means a regular school. She didn't go to a private school. It was actually factually incorrect. Theresa May also went to a comprehensive school as well. But, but I take your wider point that we have a Conservative Party which is riven by old Etonians, people that went to Eton, Harrow, then Oxbridge, who are its leaders. And she was very much not of that ilk. And then look what's happened. So I, I take the, the other thing as well. Got to be really careful if you use an American sporting analogy about fumbling the ball to talk about British politics. Because when you said fumbling the ball, I presumed you meant rugby, sir. So, you know, we are talking about Britain and rugby is by far a better sport than American football or gridiron or whatever the heck you call it. Well, of course I was talking about rugby. What else would I be talking about? I was just making sure. I was just making sure. Let's move away quickly from British politics and let's go all the way to the conflict in Ukraine where the proud people of Ukraine are fighting for their independence. Marvin, the Russians have either got to the outskirts of Balmut or have got into Balmut. Much more significant, I believe, is that the Russians have decided to evacuate Kherson, at least the civilians there, and they know that their position on the left bank of the Dnipro is literally untenable. The Ukrainians seem to be making fantastic advances. Is that Western propaganda? Everything that you've said, I agree with. I was doing a little bit of research and looking up various sources, and, you know, there is currently a lot of small arms fire and bombs in Balmut. And so I think that we'll know a lot more in the morning. The movements that we're seeing, these are, these are strategic losses with intentional wins. How much of what the Russians have done obviously is in response to the bombing of the Kerch Bridge, but how much of it also is for the domestic political audience that is up against Putin saying that he's not prosecuting the war hard enough? Aaron? Well, you know, what we can, what, what at least I can comment on is I don't know what the strategic gain for this would be, if not that exact thing. Because let's be honest, with the supply chain strangulation that Russia is going through right now, right? They're not going to, they may not be able to build those missiles again. Those are missiles, right? Not rockets, I'm assuming, right? Those are missiles. So those all have components that need materials that are currently embargoed from. So I just don't know what the strategic significance of it would be. And so that's why I would kind of agree with the premise of your question. But Aaron, do you believe that the embargoes are being respected by the countries that are supposed to be, you know, enacting these embargoes? It seems to me they're finding a lot of workarounds. Well, I mean, you know, there's definitely some things that are happening. That's not to say that, you know, the, uh, the scheme is like ultimate in its deployment and respect. But the things that are really bringing the hurt, you know, like semiconductors, for example, if they want to monitor particular components or elements or something like that that could be used to go into making things, they can look at those things, right? I mean, the United States has a lot of practice with this. So for example, you can't send anything to Iran for that could be used for that, right? There are all kinds of restrictions and customs will let, you know, law, et cetera, everything. They may be selling oil and getting funds from that, right? But when we're looking at the replenishment of their armaments, 
if they're not rockets or, or, or bullets or something like that, I don't know how they're going to be able to make missiles that they spend. Well, the, the reason I say what I said is because if you see the recent hoopla that happened with Nancy's trip to Taiwan and now the drama going on with Taiwan, it's hard to believe that the Chinese are going to 100% be enacting these embargoes. Don't forget, you don't need the first generation of chips for a lot of these things. You need second, third gen even. So the bottom line is that it's very hard to believe that regarding the situation with Taiwan, if you take that into account, take what's happened there, take all the drama that happened there, and then you're going to tell me that they're 100% respecting these embargoes. And, and if you see the uptick, not uptick really, massive uh, drop in, in, in uh, energy imports out of Russia to, to China, it's just hard to believe, but but obviously well, there's no data or evidence to support it, but it's very hard to believe. My answer to that would be this. So one, right, I definitely feel like it would be in China's interest to certainly help Russia out somewhat. Does China necessarily have a strategic interest in helping out Russia so much that it ends up winning the war or comes out of this any stronger than we think that it will be? I'm not entirely sure. China gains a significant amount of, of resource opportunity and deployment that it can use, for example, you know, warmer possibilities for expansion of the, what's it called, road initiative, for example, right? Giving people greater preferential trade access to Russia's market, right? Which will need a lot of outlets after this, right? I mean, so I think we, I, I think that it might be strategically adept for some support, but I don't know about an overwhelming support like that. But as it, as it goes to Taiwan, I mean, I personally think we're going to see more of an unrestricted war effort strategy there rather than a conventional one. If I was the Chinese government, I would certainly be learning lessons in how the U.S. coordinates economic pressure, how things can be tracked when you're trying to do conventional war strategies. But I, I'm unsure that Taiwan is really going to be invaded in the way that we expect it to be done vis-a-vis -vis Crimea 2022, I think it's going to be more like Ukraine 2014. There, there is a, there's a couple of massive differences there, is that the Russians could take Crimea by stealth in 2014 because there are Russian bases there, the biggest, you know, it's warm sea port in Sevastopol, and then various military bases which were on lease from the Ukrainian state. The Russians were already there, so all they needed to do was just walk out of the bases and then just put up roadblocks, and that was the end of that. Whereas if China was going to invade Taiwan, it needs to send numerous amounts of ships with troops on to cross the South China Sea, and you see that invasion coming. Well, it's qualitatively different. Really quickly, I will say this. The only reason why I'm comfortable saying this is because I'm pretty sure a bunch of Chinese people in a room that are paid to think about this have probably already thought this out. But anyway, you know, it wouldn't be too much to suggest that, you know, maybe at some point, you know, for example, about a third of the population or so supports the Kuomintang, right? We might have a rough estimate that only about half of those people perhaps are actually ideologically, you, you know, you know, adherent to, you know, the, the, the one China idea, right? So maybe China turns out the propaganda just like Russia did in, in, you know, in Crimea there. And then, you know, people get radicalized. Maybe China smuggles over a few guns or something like that. They drum up some protests online and stuff. Maybe people show up there. A couple people get shot in Taiwan. Oh, my God. People are getting shot in Taiwan. What the hell's going on? OK, this maybe happens a couple of times before China goes, oh, well, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we don't want uh, Taiwan to go and turn into another Myanmar. OK, there's a lot of stuff that we have to protect over there. We have to protect our, you, you know, the main government is, is clearly not adept or, or able to go and safeguard the people. So we have to go in and then they have a, you know, oh, my gosh, what's you're, the you're suggesting a false flag operation. 
is what you're saying. What it's unrestricted it's, it's basically what Russia did in 2014 to Ukraine. But um, I, I hear you. But if you look at any kind of opinion polls, the younger the Taiwanese are, the more they're implacably against China. You don't need a lot of and people I, to do this. Aaron, let's not get lost in Taiwan <laughs> and China's attitude towards Taiwan. The question which led us there was about the war in Ukraine. And I appreciate that the Chinese are looking at, it was one of the ways which you led us down this path, the Chinese are most definitely looking at the way that the world, specifically the West, has reacted to overt aggression. And, and Royfield. unprecedented sanctions is part of it. What's the best possible geopolitical outcome for China with the war in Ukraine? And most definitely it's a weakened Russia. Whether that's a defeated Russia is another question. And I think it's really significant that within, the, the, within Central Asia, China has given unfettered support to Kazakhstan and the C CSTO, which is the Russian equivalent to NATO, is dead in the water. And just in January, you had Russian troops prop up the Kazakhstan government because there were street protests against it. They, were, they, they propped up the government. Kazakhstan is now turning away Russians who are trying to flee into Russia with the support of China. So this is absolutely quite pivotal. Let us move on from the, from the war in Ukraine. We've got a lot, of, a lot more people actually on, on stage now. The Labour Party is some 33 points ahead of the Conservatives if the opinion polls are to be believed. Is it right and proper that Sakia Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, isn't proposing anything radical when it comes to fixing or rebalancing the British economy, that he, ultimately what he's doing is just watching the Conservatives implode? Discuss. Yeah, well, why wouldn't you watch them implode? They're doing a very good job of his job for him yeah so i think if i if it was me and it's a bit like china and russia if i if, if it was me i would just go say nothing let it play out and at the same time behind the scenes get your policies together get your direction together get the 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 basis on which you're going to have your own party's support which has always been the biggest issue for a labor leader get that all in place and then whether it be two years i think it is to the next election or whether it be precipitated earlier because there is a vote of no confidence which would get supported by you know conservatives who knows but what i'm saying is just take it you know be calm make the right statements at the right time. Was that be calm and carry on? Yeah, totally. Don't do anything that's going to get, you know, get attention on you unnecessarily and just let it all pan out. Because, I mean, you know, what, what's happened today with, with the the Chancellor being removed and, and anybody who thinks that Trust can disassociate herself from the policies that the Chancellor put forward, I mean, it's just sh shocking. So well, she, she has removed from herself her last shield. In effect, her shield was quasi Kwarteng. We know, and she's admitted it, that that budget was completely and utterly signed off by her. She, she, you know, she is as complicit as he 
is. However, the money markets have said, Britain, no, you can't do this. The Bank of England are in effect also running British economic policy as the pound tanks. It's throwing money into yeah. bond markets to, to, you know, to, to keep the country going, so to speak. Backbenchers, Tory backbenchers that are up in arms. She has nowhere only, to go. The only thing in her favour, and I'm not 100% sure of how, what, the, what the rules are within the Conservative Party, is that they can't have another election for 12 months after they've just well, had an internal election. I, I was going to, I so, was going to come on to that. I'm going to come on to that. But that ben. But I mean, that, you know, those type of rules can, can disappear. So, yes. but what the, the Tories actually need to step back and needs to, you know, they won't, this won't happen is that there should just now be a general election. We'd all make a massive sigh of relief. And then we can actually stand back, get the policies out there from both sides, and let's elect. And Sakir Starmer, come on, dude, now is your time. It most definitely is. And uh, he's done just about nothing to put himself 33 points ahead in, in the opinion polls. But as I said, if you have a government which is riven with this level of incompetency, you don't have to do anything. You just watch the opposition implode with with wanting to get new voices on stage and to pivot the conversation we have jenny with us who's up in sweden jenny just very quickly because i want to make sure that you get to speak also eris and then we'll end with american politics again tell us what's the, the latest situation with this interregnum in sweden where we don't actually have a proper governing government at the moment how are negotiations going with the political parties around the swedish democrats well actually it looks like they formed a government today and the sweden democrats are not part of the par parliament but they do have some posts somewhere I have to be totally honest and tell you that I've been working all day and not really checking the news that much since the show this morning. And I did not, because the press conference about them actually having a proposal, like a government, a parliament proposal ready that happened at 10 a.m. this morning, which was at the same time as caffeinated and ready was starting. And so I missed the press conference. So I'm not quite sure, but Jenny, it's like, Jenny, can, I have some... Jenny can, can you do a quick Google for us? Quick Google. All right. And I'll come I'll back in three I'll minutes. All right. You yeah. do that. You do that. Okay. Right. okay. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So before we go back to, to Sweden, let's go to Israel and at Tel Aviv in particular. What has been the biggest news story in Tel Aviv, Eris, in the last 24 hours? Oh my God. I worry, Phil. Okay, so still the, the, the biggest issue that's going on in the moment and is talked about a lot is the Lebanon-Israel agreement. I think I talked about it in the other room. It's, it's, it's an, we're calling it an historic agreement yesterday. I heard an interview, very interesting interview to Israeli TV by the, the ambassador that is in charge on this, on this agreement. And he came up with a few very, very interesting points. One of them is, is the fact that Israel and Lebanon are not in any kind of relationship or contact. And the fact that there'll be an agreement between, between two country, countries in the Middle East that are not really a, a kind of enemies, I would call it. But, but what happens now is this agreement is, is going to really shift the economic part of, of both countries and the defense of, of Israel. And it's very, very interesting because we're almost like normalizing with Lebanon through this agreement, but actually it's not exactly normalizing, but it's, a, it's an agreement between two countries that have been, has, has history of a lot of, you know, misunderstandings, fighting and stuff like that. So this is going to be very, very interesting moving forward. As I said, there's a lot of opposition to it within Israel and, and Prime Minister Lapid is facing a lot of... I, I'm presuming that that opposition comes from the right, from Likud. Exactly, from the right parties, really strong, like, against it and, and, and also, you know, talking and, and, against it. But... And ideologically, why is Likud and those other right-leaning parties so against this agreement? What, so why they... do they say this is bad? So they're basically talking about Hezbollah, which is the terror organization. They're saying that it's, the, it's a big win for them. That, that's what they wanted. And, and it's like Israel is like sort of selling itself uh, in terms of dealing with an organization that sits in this country, in Lebanon, Hezbollah. And Lapid is saying, listen, we, we have to move forward. And it's a part of, of, of the shift that needs to be happening in, in, in the Middle East. And it's, it's a part of the big story of Israel uh, normalizing with, 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 with countries in the region where this is a little bit different, but still it's gonna be important for next steps. And I will always, always talk about, you know, the conflict and, and the two-state solution that Lapid is talking about. And the more I think Israel will, will, will normalize and will have agreements and this will be, I think, a shift towards moving forward to some kind of, of finding a partner on the other side and, and starting to, to, to look at the conflict, because this is something that I think that, that needs to be looked at carefully. 
Thank you, Eris, correspondent over there <laughs> in Tel Aviv. Let's go back to Sweden and I'm going to come to you, Chris, and then we're going to go to Jenny. Chris, I know that you're actually in Sweden, so you keep a wary eye on Swedish politics. Jenny said a couple of minutes ago while she was out of the room that, that there has been a new government formed today. What can you tell us about that government? Bearing in mind we're all anti-fascists here, so we will we wanna all we wanna hear is that the Swedish Democrats, who are a neo-fascist party, are nowhere near government. Chris, please give us the good news. Well, I can't give you good news. They're they're not they're not going to have any like cabinet positions or anything like that because of the, the liberals who are the least right-wing partner in the coalition that was a red line for them to keep they wanted to keep the Sweden Democrats out of those positions so they're not going to be in them but they will have like a strong influence over policy and that means like for example they want to you know a lot of law and order stuff so talking about like search and seizure zones in certain communities, you know, of course, my immigrant communities. Heavily immigrant communities, yeah. Yeah, where they'd be so, able to like do kind of some kind of like stop and frisk situation. Also like a national ban on begging, which is, there's a lot of Roma people in Sweden who, who beg. So it's kind of uh, an anti-Roma policy that they could implement. Chris, could you just remind us of the comp what, what the result of the last election was just you know i'm not asking you to go through all the political parties maybe like the top three just gives an approximation of their vote share yeah the social democrats are like the traditional center-left party and they've they've been the ruling party in sweden for like 90 odd years and they got about 30 percent and then the democrats who are the far right they got about 20 and the moderates who are like the traditional right conservative party got about 19 so those two parties are part of the the right-wing block which got three more seats than the left-wing block so it was very close between the two coalitions and so it, it it you know this is a government that if if the sweden democrats don't like the way things are going they can withdraw their support and then they have to either reconfigure the coalition or other the social democrats in some kind of scenario could form a government but i think this will last at least in my opinion i've heard it will last at least a year or two before any coalition would fall apart gotcha jenny i know you I asked you to do your googling but just before we move away from sweden could you tell us about the leader of the Swedish Democrats? Who are they? What are they like? And their history in Swedish politics? Well, the current leader, he has changed his rhetoric somewhat. He has tacked on the uh, the immigration. He's cleaned up the way he form like he formulates the immigration policy that he would like to see. And actually part of this agreement to make this government that they have formed and thank you, Chris, for helping me with the words, translation of like the words in the Swedish parliament. And one of them is to, we have a quota that we're supposed to accept here in Sweden, which they are bringing down to the bare minimum. And also they're making it harder to get into Sweden down to like the bare minimum, just like on the line what the EU requires of a country to accept when it comes to immigrants. 
But what they have tacked on, which is absolutely brilliant when you think about politics, is the fact that they're saying we're going to be tougher on crime. Right now, Sweden has this, you get like one off, actually you get two, like one third of your punishments when you're committed a crime. That is, your sentence is automatically reduced by one third and then you get out on probation. And now they're saying that's going to be taken away. And they also want to fund, get more funds to the police and more funds to the military. And who's against that? I like that too. I'm just not willing to give up some of my rights. The one good thing that's coming out of this coalition is the fact that they are actually going to secure in our Grundlaga, which I would translate, if I did a draft translation, would be foundational laws, the founding laws of the country. They're going to secure the rights to free abortion at 18 weeks, which is what we currently have. And then between week 18 and 22 or 23, then you have a doctor's note and they can still have an abortion. And I think it's a right that should be protected so that the fascist government can't go in and revoke those rights. But gotcha. they tack those things. But you have thugs. I, in his nearest circle, in Yimiwaki-san's nearest circle, you have people who have committed sexual assaults. You have people, there's one video clip of a guy with a lead pipe or a steel pipe threatening people on the streets. They are, they are just thugs, in my opinion. So. Gotcha. And uh, it's a shame that a, a country with such a proud a history of tolerance now has in its government, it, it, not at least in its cabinet, but also with its governing coalition, a party which is outwardly fascist. Let's hope that this is their high watermark and the Swedish people will banish them to the dustbin of history at the next election. Now, before we go on to an end with American domestic politics, Chris, you wanted to quickly say something. You want to just quickly jump in? Yeah, we can move on. real quick. The SD voters, it's just interesting to talk about them for a minute. You know, a lot of them are former center left, like social Democrat working class voters. Also, a lot of them are just, you know, like regular right winger right-wing, you know, more wealthy people, but they tend to come from the, the rural areas, especially in the region that I live, it's called Skåne in the, in the south. And I just, it's, it's interesting because they're, you know, anti-immigrant, of course, but the immigrants are all in the big cities where they don't live. So they're very afraid of like places like Malmö or Stockholm or Gothenburg, but the, the, those, in those cities, they don't have a very big foundation. It's it's in the rural areas and the small towns where the immigrants don't actually even live. And I and the other thing I wanted to say was um this is also just traditional right wing policies are going to be implemented, like the the conservatives, which they're called the moderates, but they're 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 conservative traditional conservatives, like country club conservatives in the US or the UK. And they're going to try to cut taxes for rich people and cut welfare. And that's supposed to be what the Sweden Democrats have been saying. They want to keep the welfare state, but just not for immigrants. So there will be a tension. There will be a tension if the traditional right wing parties try to go too far in in cutting taxes and cutting welfare, because that goes directly against the Sweden Democrats narrative. Gotcha. And, and thank you for that. So what I want to do now is come to Tina. Tina, are you with us? 
Yes, I am. Fantastic, fantastic. So I just want a quick line or two from you, Tina, about Italy. Obviously, the other election which happened recently, other than the Swedish one, was the Italian one. And we have in Italy the situation whereby, again, an avowed neo-fascist party who looks back at Mussolini and the fascist party with rose-tinted spectacles, or Occhiale, there's my terrible Italian, you know, is very much the heirs of that party. What has been happening in the last week in Italian politics with the Brothers of Italy now being at the helm of the Italian government? Hey, thank you for asking me, and just for the record, yes, I'm living in Finland, but I, I used to live in Italy 10 years and speak in Italian. And being Italian rooms, I'm also here in Clubhouse hosting Italian newsroom. The situation in Italy is, is kind of uh, tricky at the moment because Italians themselves, they voted Giorgio Meloni as their leader at the moment. But if you think about how many Italians really attended to the vote, it was only less than 60%. So Italians, uh, rather, when they vote something, it's always protest vote after they were disappointed someone else. So they have at the moment Giorgio Mel, who will be a very likely new prime minister of Italy, but it's very difficult also for Giorgio Meloni, who... First of all, she is the first woman and she's also first the war who is leading now and trying to make coalition. So she needs Matteo Salvini. Matteo Salvini is very tough guy who comes from Lega and Lega is uh, traditionally far-right party. Lega, it means for, for legalist that they want to separate Italy, divide it north and south. And of course, uh, Matteo Salvini is also... Just, uh, just on that, uh, sorry, Tina, because I thought that the League had put all those policies be behind it. I remember Umberto Bossi was the leader of the Legia, the League of the North in the 80s and the 90s, but I thought the League was now a, a unified Italian right political party. <laughs> Yes, but you have to understand that the strong personalities and Latin temper. And uh, Matteo Salvini is someone who is very pro-Russian, and she is in favor that he is in favor that Russian invited. And then you have uh, Giorgio Meloni, who supports openly. So there are two personalities who have similarity with their politics but they have very big, huge ideological gap at the moment. So there is the moment now, we don't know how these two big personalities can go together. Everything seems to be very smoothly before elections, but as you know, Italy, everything can change in a few hours. And then there's also, we have to know there's this godfather, Berlusconi, they need Berlusconi, and we don't know exactly how Berlusconi will behave, because we had it these three people, three personalities, political right-wing before the elections. They seem to be so agreed, 
But as far as we know at the moment, Giorgio Meloni has very different politics with Ukraine, and Matteo Salvini wants to keep his ideological positions to Ukraine. Gotcha. That's going to be a big uh, issue at the moment. Fantastic. All right, let's end with, unless we have a little bit more time, maybe we can come back to British politics, but I presume that if I turn our attention to American politics, we're going to consume about the next 10 to 15 minutes. All right, so let's go to American politics. We have talked about Trump. We talked about January the 6th and with the commission. So let's try not to go down that road again. The midterms are literally three weeks away. First off, what is going to be the outcome of the midterms to your best opinion? The opinion polls say that the Democrats should hold the Senate. The Republicans should take the House by by a small amount and that we're going to end up with divided government for the next two years worth of the administration of Joe Biden, which means in traditional political terms that nothing is going to get done. Ashley said she can't talk, remember? The reason I don't is because I don't know. I mean, I just think it's a bunch of like one party system called the Republican Democrat system. You know, and they just go up there and change some things. There's some really bigger things going down in the world than than politics. I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, as a a technologist myself, I've worked built international companies myself. I I can tell you that that what's most important is... As an avowed left of center person, I do agree that there are more things, more things more important than, than politics. However... No, right but I'm saying specifically now, in I'm politics. I'm you specifically about the midterms and not the philosophy of how the world is constructed, if that's all right, sir. So, sure. Right, well, right. What's, what's, what's more interesting to me is what's going on with Twitter, right? Like the, the politics of Twitter and what's going on with Elon and Twitter. Denny and I have talked about Like, I'd love Denny to talk about the politics of that because I think that's the most significant thing. Well, I'll I'll touch both real quick if you want, Roy Phil, because I want to talk about the midterms. One second. I'm going to declare my interest here. I am always perplexed why Americans, and and I will say this, and no disrespect, why Americans and American men in particular seem to be so fascinated with, with Elon Musk. Maybe it's become because I come from a country where we don't lionize entrepreneurs and say that they have superhuman powers and a superhuman intellect, why I believe this. But I don't quite understand. And we can have, and, and now. Well, we well Royfield, you don't have any in your country, any superpower entrepreneurs. That's why you don't lie. Apologies, but apologies, but that's just. Denny, that's Denny. Flatly wrong. Flatly wrong. Richard Branson. He was lionized quite quite well by the media. One second. One second. One second. We hang out. We hang out. We hang out with Richard Branson, though. That's the thing. Like, dude, Richard Branson hangs out with our EO entrepreneur group all the time. Like every year. Yeah, he but like, but we, he's cool. We, but, but that's but what I'm saying. That's where that's where that's where but, real but here's politics. The thing. Here's the thing. Um, um, yes. Now we can have a real real politics. Real politics. Let's have a conversation about America and specifically American men and the fetishization of Elon Musk. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. I'll go. I'll go ahead and start it off. Okay, but I do want to touch on the midterms because I thought that was oh, a great topic. Please, uh, please. I don't know if that, I'm okay, to. let's do the midterms okay. and then let's end up with Elon Musk. 
Okay, so the midterms, I think classically speaking, the polls, whatever they say, it's going to be obviously, you know, a a bigger number for the Republicans in the end, because the polls are obviously constantly lowering their numbers. The bottom line is this, two issues really, not even main issues. You've got number one, first and foremost, is obviously the economy, inflation, but right underneath there is crime. Crime has skyrocketed. It is the only topic of conversation, specifically in the major cities, which are Democrat-run. Right now, you have Democrats recalling their own elected officials. So you have Democrats recalling their own elected officials in San Francisco and other places and moving to recall the people that they put in. So it is a major issue for Democrats and Republicans. There is, that's most definitely been an issue in San Francisco. Oh, majorly. And did recall the public prosecutor there. You're most definitely correct if I just look at it. Which is unheard of. But well, for them it, to do it to their own. Absolutely, absolutely is un- unheard of. So I'm, I'm interested, though. I'm interested to go back to one of your main premises of, of what you just said, though, Danny, that the polls always underestimate Republicans. Yeah. Uh, the generic ballot does put the, the Democrats up by, I think, somewhere like plus three. Um, even if you then factor in the people who are, let's say, a little bit embarrassed to say that they're going to vote Republican, that puts things plus one for the Democrats. So, so I, I take your point that well, the re- Republican vote share generally is underestimated. But also we have to factor in to this. And whilst I take the point that crime has most definitely peaked in the last two years, no two ways about it. Inflation has peaked, even though it's coming down. What about the enthusiasm of new voters, young voters, female voters, wanting to display their utter distrust of Roe being overturned? I think that's a... That's not a a non-issue. If you look at the polls, you look at everything happening with that, that's a non-issue at this point. It's become a non-issue. Okay. 100% non-issue. Specifically in in the places... Okay. Okay. All right. All right. I hear what you're saying. I don't necessarily agree with it. I'll but they had it wrong with, too. R- 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 one, R- one, R- one second. Let's have one conversation at a time. All the special elections from May to now, which have been run in the United States, the Democrats have massively overperformed, even taking a seat as a, con- a congressional seat in Alaska. Which, is, which has not happened since the 1950s. Now, I know there's also another extenuating circumstance that the Republican vote was split, but in all American special elections since May, the Democrats have won them when they've been up against Republicans. Well, not the one in Texas. The one in Texas, you had a classic historical Democrat district. Now a Republican, a Latino woman won that. So like I said, I think there's, there's a lot of details there that we can get into, but I, I know there's not much time. But the bottom line is this. You've got two major issues. Everybody knows it. Okay, that's it. There's no other issues in this country right now. You've got economy, inflation, and you've got crime. So, okay? but, and, and, and taking away that, a, form, a woman's uh, reproductive rights is not at all a but no, Well, you have to understand. No, no, hold on. Let me, Mario, hold on. Hold on. One thing, one thing, one thing, one thing. Just one thing. Listen. First of all, dude, that's a, like that's a perfect example of how things are messed up. Oh, the, the Supreme Court just overturned it and kicked it to the states. Now the states, yeah, it's to, to the states. That's, the thing. that's it. It's not, so it's, yeah, it's what not you're saying, Royfield, is the fact yeah. that there was the Roe v. Wade overturnal, and and I personally don't agree with it. And I think many Republicans do not agree with it. I don't think it's a, it was a major issue. I was shocked the Supreme Court even did that. I think many Republicans were as well. The main issues are the economy and crime. You're going to see in this midterm an election, I think, that is going to be all about what's happened the past two years. Without a doubt, it's going to be a wipeout of the Democrat Party. 
Now, economy. About two to three weeks, I believe, after this election, you will see the reality in the economy. There's been a lot of things that have been happening, a lot of games, so to speak, that have been played. You know, when, when the ruble went down, Russia started doing their manipulation, whatever, of the market. Everybody said, oh, it's not real because they're manipulating. Well, every country does. Look at Japan. They're manipulating their, their yen left and right. Okay, big mess in Japan right now. So I think, I think there's been a lot of games being played. A lot of those games are not going to be able to be played a couple weeks after the election because, again, the Republicans, I believe, will sweep the House, and I believe they will take the Senate without a doubt considering the climate in the country. Okay. So I'll have All to right. say yes. thank you. We, so, we, so right, one, one second, one second. Mayhem next. Michael, Aram, and then we're going to do Creed, and then who else said they wanted to speak? Mamadou. All right, and then after that, because I do have work to do, I'm going to close this room down, but it has been a fantastic discussion. So I'll, I'll address the Elon thing, right? I fucking love Elon, all right? A guy, let me tell you why. As a technologist, as an entrepreneur that's built companies around the world, that guy doesn't fucking sell out. That's what that's all about, baby. That fool okay. does not sell out. He does not sell out. He does not sell out, right? That's what Elon's about. He sat here, if you read his book, and he's got balls, dude, right? He was four hours away from, like, getting shut down and kept fucking going to get SpaceX up, right? They told everybody, everybody tells him you can't do this and you can't do that. And, you can't, and, he, and he fucking kills it and he doesn't sell out in the process. He does it with honor, man. You know, and everybody could like criticize him and whatever the fuck. But at the end of the right. day, people know Ma- that Ma- dude's heart, his the heart tunnels, right Ma- tunnels, his heart is in the right spot, right spot it, for humanity. When it, comes, when it comes to honor, the way that he tried to wiggle out of his agreement to buy Twitter after the share price nah, crashed, nah, 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 and he realized nah, 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 his nah, nah, play over it. They wouldn't do due diligence. Do due they wouldn't allow due diligence to happen. You got, you got to show, you got to show the person buying the information. This is the reason why. One second. All right, everybody, just please be quiet. Everybody, just please. This is why we love him. Because this is the reason why. This is the reason why. I find it literally impossible to talk about this man, even particularly on this app. <laughs> because for some strange reason, American men, some American men seem to think that he is Jesus that can walk on water. And I find it incredible. Well, he does the impossible, Roof. He does the impossible. Well, uh, Look at the rockets. Hardly, Look at the electric hardly. cars. Do not, do, it is to launch a rocket into space is not impossible. Rockets that is can be reused, Royfield, bringing down the cost of rockets to five million per launch from 55, 60 listen, million that it was. No, electric no cars, the whole world's copying his company now. Is, he, everybody talks about electric cars and he did it. He did it. Nobody did okay. it but him. We've now spoken about him. Let us move on. Michael, we were talking about the <laughs> midterms. Please let's have some sober reflection on them. Michael Donahue, over to you. I was actually just going to drop a couple bombs and, and walk away. I'm, I'm tired of the both sides, the enlightened centrism of, of, you know, both sides being the same. It's patently ridiculous when you look at the legislative agenda over the last four years and the whole thinking that this is going to be some red wave Republican runaway victory is it feels exactly the same as, you know, people thinking that Birmingham's going to win the Premier League this year. I don't even know if it's technically possible. Technically uh, not possible at all. We're in the championship. Okay, getting promoted, winning 20 games. It's just that just evokes a sense of homerism. I think if Republicans fire consistently and this thought that Roe versus Wade is not an impactor on the turnout is, again, crazy talk. It absolutely is. Polls. Well, the, uh, the polls don't agree with you, Michael. Uh, the I, polls I would actually ask you to point me to the poll. But, but anyway, Denny, let, let the man finish. Let the man finish. Well, that's it. No, I'll 
I'll land my plane and walk away while it's on fire. All right, Aram. Aram, yeah. Thanks, Roy Field. And you know, as a believer in the power of positive thinking, I think Birmingham actually can win the Premiership. So, I'm well, you're a fool, then, sir. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan. I don't think we can ever get On a more serious note, to, to give a little more credibility to just how impactful Roe v. Wade, or, or really, let's call it what it is, reproductive freedom, is going to be in this midterm election, we can look at the numbers. So the polls are based on models that are based on sort of the, the pollster's best guess of what the electorate is going to be. In the U.S., not that many people vote in midterm elections. It's less than half the eligible population that will probably vote in this election. Perhaps with some of these sort of fiery issues, it might get up a little bit above 50 percent, but probably not, which is another way of saying that who turns out and who doesn't turns out doesn't turn out is going to decide who wins. And one thing that we can see very hard numbers on is that young women are registering at a rate that we haven't seen in at least a generation, probably in many, dating back to when women were first given the right to vote in the U.S. They are already many, um, they're up about 30% over 2018, which was the last midterm election in Michigan, for example, which is a very important state. They've got a governor's, I think all their statewide offices are up. They have many important house races in Michigan that will be decided by just a couple of points at most. And we see the same sort of thing in most of the most important states. We see young women registering to vote in numbers that we just haven't seen. And I would be shocked, absolutely shocked, if it was, say, inflation that was driving them to do that. It doesn't make sense, in particular, because we see these changes in registration happen after the Hobbs decision. I'm sorry, the Dobbs decision, which is the one that kicked abortion to the states and immediately led to abortion bans in 13 states. We also just see an overall skew of women registering more than men across the country. Um, because after that decision came down. So I think that absolutely will play in. I do think that because the sort of, you know, what are called the fundamentals, the economy, the favorability approval ratings of the president, all those things largely favor the Demo I'm sorry, the Republicans in this cycle. But one of the things that's happened is they chose very bad candidates. And there's a lot of candidates who are underperforming relative to what expectation would be given where those fundamentals are. Where there's better Republican candidates, they are generally performing better. But if you look at places like Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, you've got candidates who are deeply, deeply flawed. And just for that reason alone are, are underperforming. And I think the other one that is an interesting issue that's new really in at least modern American history is that democracy is regularly polling as one of the top issues. So you see people like Doug Mastriano, the gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania, basically has said, I will rig the elections for Donald Trump next time, was present at January, you know, on January 6th in D.C. Um, he is polling way behind even Dr. Oz, the Senate candidate, who's largely considered to be not a very good candidate. In Arizona, the secretary of state candidate was also there on January 6th. That guy is not polling very well, in part because of that history. Blake Masters, the Arizona Senate candidate, is the same thing. So we see democracy being on the ballot in a way where people are literally worried that elections are going to be rigged moving forward, and they don't want to see someone who is completely unqualified for the job of administering our elections actually doing so. So I think that there's a lot that's happening in, in this election that makes it unusual and different, and that kind of the the wisdom that has been accepted for many cycles isn't necessarily going to apply as 
you know, as well as it has in the past. And on. Thank you for that sober analysis. An analysis not just built by your gut and what you feel and what you hope, but also by by some evidence. Creed, you're up next. And then I think if we are going to be talking about the midterms and, and, and the role that women's reproductive rights are going to play in it, we should actually hear from a woman. So then I think we should go to Jennifer and Dr. Francine, and then we can start to wrap this room up. So Creed, you've waited patiently. Yes, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, I'm glad. Erin, thank you so very much for that sobering analysis. That was very great. Good. Because I think for men, typically we don't, aren't paying attention because these issues don't, it doesn't affect our, us. You know, I've been noticing women have been sort of like a sleeping giant. They're not really discussing it. They're discussing it amongst each other and they're creating forms and they're having these discussions. So, but we're typically not part of those spaces. So we likely just don't care. So uh, it, uh, that's a sobering analysis. I was going to say that inflation seems to be the big issue in America and the fear of the economy and what's coming next year. The interest rates, the high interest rates in housing, companies beginning to do hiring freezes and things like that. But that's a sobering analysis about the reproductive issues of women. I had thought that it was a non secular because I thought, you know, in a lot of states, even in Texas, Women largely have access to abortion in democratic cities. Women have access to abortion. So women that would really care about these issues. But it's an interesting analysis. But yeah, I mean, and in terms of Elon Musk, I mean, he's popular amongst a lot of red peel, you know, guys, predominantly white males who sit on the peripheral of, of the red peel ideology. He seems to be very popular amongst them. The rest of the country right now are... Famous people, celebrities, whatever you call them, personalities, have sort of been politicized to a great degree. And Elon Musk is no exception. He seems to fancy, you know, Donald Trump and that elk, MAGA elk. And so people kind of side-eye him. So, you know, that's pretty much where we're at now. Gotcha. Shame we have to mention Elon Musk again. But anyway, Jennifer, do you believe that a key component of the voting intentions of Americans will be Dobbs, the repeal of Roe versus Wade. Let's go to Dr. Francine and then what we're going to do. Well, I think so. So far, it's motivated a lot of, of younger people to register to vote who don't usually register to vote. And we have a very large university, Arizona State University, that I think has something like 200,000 students. And, and they are mostly of reproductive age. And so this is a big issue to them. Yeah, Mamadou. Yeah, I just wanted to, hello everyone. I just wanted to respond to Denny earlier when he talked about like inflation and I think rising crime being the number one issue and saying that, that the reproductive issue basically is not a, issue according to the polls. I just want to say this, it wouldn't have been an issue until you had someone like Lindsey Graham stand on stage and say he's thinking about implementing a 15, is it a 15 week ban at a federal level for abortion? If you think that's not going to galvanize women to come out and vote, then something is wrong with you. And regardless of what the poll says, Royfield highlighted something. Every special election that you've looked at that has happened. I live like five minutes away from the state of Kansas. They had an election on this issue. Kansas of all places, people came out and voted. They made sure that their vo voice was heard. And as a matter of fact, they went ahead and reviewed that election. 
and it confirmed the validity of the result. So the bottom line for me is this. It's quite possible. I am not going to rule out the possibility that Republicans take the House. They could actually come out and take the Senate too. It's entirely possible. People vote as a result of the issues they are facing. So if you're deeply affected by inflation, chances are you're going to vote for that. But I will say this, <laughs> there's not going to be any red wave. Yeah. Well, we're all about to find out here in three weeks. Somebody's going to be right. Somebody's going to be wrong. So. Yeah. And you're completely right, Danny. We're going to find out in three weeks' time, which is the reason why I'm somewhat surprised that you said it's going to be a red wave. You, you, you were pretty, pretty clear. Well, the women, as far as I can tell, are more concerned with crime and getting robbed and murdered than they are with anything else right now. So I'm sorry about that. Well, That's what's happening in this country. Well, I don't know if you, who as, you guys are thinking as, but... as you said, we can revisit this in three weeks' time and see who was right and, and who was wrong. But one thing we haven't had a lot of in, in this room for the last hour and a half is, is female voices. And I think it's only right and proper that we in, that we basically give women a platform to speak. Dr. Keisha, you've just joined us. Specifically, we were talking about female reproductive rights. Should it be at something which is a national right, a constitutional right or is it something which can be devolved to the states where do you stand on this dr keisha well we see what happens when it's in the states and denny unfortunately you know as a woman and knowing many women and especially those in healthcare, it is one of the most important things right now and i'll tell you there's a lot that people don't know what's going on because of it being in the states and me in texas now doctors patients who have an inevitable uh, miscarriage they have to wait for that patient's hemoglobin to drop to where they're almost dying to be able to take treatment. For patients that want to have acne treatment, that want medications, even if they're not pregnant, if they are of reproductive age, even pharmacists now are being told that they can't give them medication. So it's becoming a fact now where even soon to be residents in OB-GYN are not even wanting to go into OB-GYN because of this. So this is a bigger issue, it's even making doctors question their practice and their rights and their ability to continue in their specialty. So it's very concerning to me. I think that when we're remotely removed from something, we make these comments about what we're concerned about, but no, it's deeper than that. And I think it's better for us to take a deeper dive and see what's going on in healthcare medicine for these patients in day in and day out than just to say it's not of importance. Thank you. Thank no, you. I think it's important. And I said, I don't agree with the ruling, but the fact is I just, the economy and crime are the only topic of conversation that I'm hearing anywhere. And I I've been traveling a lot lately, and it's just, there's two topics, that's it. Okay. It's weird to bring up anecdotes when we've got polling that shows this is a very important <laughs> issue, you know? It's also strange to, to say that when we've got evidence, like the evidence I provided before around registration, where there's been a marked shift right at the same time that the decision came down. Like, I understand that we all have our anecdotes and there's the people around us and that's influential to us, but it isn't necessarily indicative of larger trends in a country of 330 million whatever people. This room has been somewhat of a revelation considering I did absolutely no prep for it. Normally with my Mid-Atlantic rooms, I have two or three audio clips, news clips to help illustrate the story. I just opened the room and just shot from the hip, so to speak. And we've gone through a whole plethora of issues. We've dealt with the UK and the sacking of the finance minister, the Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng. We've looked at the war in Ukraine and we've had some great insight from Marvin there and, and, and other speakers. 
We've dealt with Taiwan and China, the China's growing diplomatic influence within Central Asia. Of course, we looked at Trump on January the 6th and the hearings and will he be subpoenaed. We've looked at American politics. We looked at Swedish politics and with the Swedish Democrats being with the, with the new formation of the Swedish government and the fact they're going to have no cabinet seats, but they will sit in government. And the Swedish Democrats are a fascist party. I, I kind of dislike when people say neo-fascist. We should call them out for what they are a fascist party. We looked at Italian politics and the fact that they're, they're the brothers of Italy who are similarly a fascist party are going to be leading the government there. And Tina told us about its coalition partners, Marcel Salvini and Berlusconi, and how those personalities potentially are going to shape the future Italian government. We went back to British politics again and we talked about the Labour Party and the future for the Conservative parties and can they actually remove from power. Their leader, Liz Trust, has only been in power for six weeks. I think that's just about it. And then, of course, we ended up by talking about re female reproductive rights and, and the midterms. If you've enjoyed the this conversation... Oh, and of course, East. we had Eris Fink, our <laughs> correspondent from Tel Aviv, who told us about the historic agreement between Israel and Lebanon, the maritime agreement, and the ramifications of that on internal Israeli politics, where the right around the party Likud and other right-leaning parties are decrying this agreement and this agreement which kind of does to all intents and purposes normalize relations between Israel and Lebanon. Two countries some 30 odd years ago were at war and the Israelis invaded southern, southern Lebanon to get rid of Hezbollah. So if you've enjoyed this conversation please hit the little green icon and uh, become a member of the Mid-Atlantic Club if you haven't done so already. I, I really wish I was an organized person. I could say that I, at a certain time and a certain day, I will do these rooms, but I have too much work on and I just do them in, in and around. So join the house, sorry, join the club, sorry, Mid-Atlantic. And as of when I go live with these rooms, at least you'll be alerted and you can jump in. I think you see that uh, we like to encourage informed debate and comments from all around the world. We, we don't just look at US and UK politics, or we do look at things around the world. There is actually a, a house called Global Telegraph, which is remarkably similar to this. Join the wait list for that if you would like to be part of that. We have weekly rooms there. We have weekly briefing rooms. So it'd be good to see you over in the house, which is called Global Telegraph, if you don't join Mid-Atlantic. There you go. That's me, Royful Brown, saying goodbye, goodbye. I've got to go and do some some work because people pay for me to have this phone actually connected to 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 the world and if i don't do work uh, they'll cut me off so there you go everybody take care look after yourselves bye, -bye. fabulous fabulous Roy. Roy. Oh. hey so take much. care Royful. take care guys Mille grazie. bye bye Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 